My Lord, my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me and that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins and for the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my guardian angel, intercede for me. We're going to turn to the Gospel of Saint John. And we're going to try to focus our prayer, our conversation with Jesus this afternoon by following the trajectory, the story of a man by the name of Nicodemus. He appears in three distinct moments in John's Gospel. And each of those three moments shows us a, a growth, a development. And we want to pray about it because I think it can teach us a lot about what friendship with Jesus means. So that friendship isn't, I don't know, a cliche, something that we just say in a kind of catchphrase sort of way, but that it's something that we actually have experience of not just a notional understanding about. Now Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He was one of the leaders in Jerusalem and one of the most important religious groups in the city. Uh, we see later in the Gospel that he was a member of the Sanhedrin, one of the, the governing body in Jerusalem. A man therefore of education, a man of importance, a man who would have been hearing the debates and the controversies about Jesus. Surely he had heard Jesus preach at different moments. He was at some of the gatherings where other people were saying, well, what about Jesus? And some people were for him. Some people were against him. Some people thought he was deceiving the crowds. He was leading them off into some strange sect. Others that maybe he was worthy of listening to because of the signs and the miracles that he worked. There was controversy around Jesus. But Nicodemus will see first one of his first qualities is that he's a sincere person. And since he's intrigued about Jesus, who is this man? There's something else here. He actually goes to talk to him. St. John tells us there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a leader of the Jews. He came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. It's interesting that this sincerity that Nicodemus actually goes to ask Jesus because he wants to know more. He goes to the, store, to the source. I mean, this is just a very flat-footed, obvious point, but if we think about it, you know, a lot of people don't actually engage in this kind of honest, sincere search for the truth. They settle with what other people say, what's comfortable to believe or go along with in their certain social group, maybe kind of a, a lazy Google search when they're bored and kind of don't have anything else to do, but they don't really follow it up or go anywhere with it. 
mean, just to ask ourselves, you know, things that I don't understand about God or about the teachings of the church, things that I don't get, really. What do I do? At the, the center of our soul is a thirst and a hunger for truth. How do I feed that hunger? How do I satisfy that thirst? And our culture generally just offers us up a steady diet of junk food, of fast food, of superficiality, of just distraction, keeping us moving and keeping us busy. But am I willing to take my desire for truth seriously and go to the source? to think about things, to ask. And this is one of the fundamental attitudes that we want to foster in prayer, that we want to foster so that we can have friendship with Jesus. Let's be willing to make that effort. Let's be willing to seek him out. Now, of course, the other thing that's very noticeable about this first encounter is not simply that Nicodemus goes to the source, that he goes to ask Jesus. He just doesn't rely on rumors is that Nicodemus goes at night so that no one can see him, so that no one knows. He doesn't want to be identified as someone who is a follower of Jesus. He does, he's very much concerned about the rumors that might circulate if people were to see him going to talk to Jesus, the way that he might be labeled and judged by his friends and the people in his social circles. So he goes at night. So we see at the very beginning, there's this tension in Nicodemus. He wants to know more, but he doesn't want to run the risk of looking too committed, too Jesus-y for the people who thought that Jesus was a controversial figure. And maybe that's something that we can identify with as well, too. Lord, we want to get to know you. In fact, the fact that I am stopping right now to try and pray, to open my heart and my mind to you, I want friendship with you. But I need to confess as well that there's moments that when I'm with my friends on a weekend, when I'm out at a restaurant or in a pub or, or in some other place, I am very self-conscious whether because of the topic that's raised in the conversation or people ask me questions or things of being identified with you. Because their approval matters to me. I don't want to seem judgmental, extremist, whatever the thing may be. We feel that tension. So that's, that's the context of this opening conversation that Nicodemus has with Jesus. It's at night, there's desire, but there's also fear. So Nicodemus is not truly free yet. So it's also interesting to see that, you know, in a very indirect roundabout way, Nicodemus, he just kind of starts off and he doesn't really ask anything. He just kind of, you know, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who's come from God. You know, not sure exactly what that means because no one can do these signs apart from the presence of God. So there's something here. He's just, he's just trying to tiptoe into a more one-on-one -on -one conversation. And Jesus' response is to try and open his mind 
very quickly to mystery. And Jesus says to him, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. No one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. So Nicodemus hears this, and then he says, Nicodemus responds, How can anyone be born after having grown old? Can one enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? We hear that it's a little bit laughable almost, how literal Nicodemus is. It's kind of striking that he just is, is a man who doesn't do metaphor. You know, he just can't take an image, but he very literally hears what Jesus says about being born, and he thinks it's about you know, pregnancy and delivering babies and how can this happen, and he takes it all very literally. And that literalness, and you know, it's, I, I myself here are kind of snickering a little bit at that lack of imaginative capacity to see what Jesus is saying, but we also too need to recognize that there's ways in which you and I lack this openness to the mystery of God, that we see reality in just two dimensions. What makes sense to me? What can, what can I feel? What am I comfortable with? And that's what's real. I've mapped it out with those parameters. Whereas we do well to just step back, and I invite you right now to do it in your own prayer. Just ask yourself the question, do I have a sense of wonder towards God? of mystery, the marvel of God, who he is, that he's listening to me right now, that through a free act of love, he is sustaining me in existence right now. Not some sort of faceless, anonymous laws of physics, not some sort of soulless, inert process of the cosmos, but God choosing that I and all that is be. Wonder at God. Or do I tend to reduce God to the size of my understanding? And I mean, without insulting anyone, the size of my understanding, I'll just speak for myself, the size of my understanding is pretty small. It's very limited to what I've experienced, to what I've seen, to what I've known. And Jesus very immediately is challenging Nicodemus, and he wants to challenge you and me. And he wants to invite us to a greater faith. The life that he's offering us is more than any eye has seen, greater than any ear has ever heard. It hasn't even risen in the heart of any human being the wonders and the marvels that God's love has prepared for us. That's what's being held out to us. Am I willing to try and see that? Am I willing to take one step forward to believe that that is true? Jesus isn't interested in getting into a, some sort of debate with Nicodemus. He just wants to invite him to a much vaster horizon. 
And what I want to suggest is that that's what he wants to do right now in our lives as well. Think bigger. Be more open. And if I could just get really specific on this real quick, and before we continue with Nicodemus, just what have I actually done in the last month to learn and to reflect on who God is? Have I lifted a finger, either by reading something, listening to a podcast, checking out a YouTube video? Have I really had any initiative at all to try to understand God a little bit more, to think about Him, to learn from people who have studied, from people who have prayed, from people who pass on a, a multi-secular tradition and spiritual wisdom that God Himself has revealed? And if I haven't, well, couldn't I? Wouldn't be hard. And I just threw out a few examples that could be, are actually quite easy. Podcast on a bus, a YouTube video. There's a lot of easy things that we can read, that we can work on. And the purpose is we're not trying to prepare for some exam that we have to pass. The purpose is because I need input so as to have the capacity to reflect and to wonder and therefore open my soul to the mystery of God. So Nicodemus takes Jesus very literally. And Jesus, with great patience and tenderness and understanding, tries to take him forward. He says to Nicodemus, Do not be astonished that I said to you, you must be born from above. The wind blows where it chooses, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said, how can these things be? Yeah. Nicodemus still, still, still doesn't understand. But he's willing in that sincere way, as we mentioned at the beginning, to just manifest that ignorance, that lack of understanding. But we hear this, this beautiful image that Jesus gives of the Holy Spirit as a wind. And, he, and Jesus kind of alludes to this almost childlike experience of wind. If we had a meteorologist in our presence, you know, he could talk to us about high pressure, low pressure, and what wind is, and kind of explain it all away. But, you know, when you're, you're a child, and maybe even just in our more kind of innocent, contemplative moments, you know, the wind is kind of a mysterious thing. It just, whew, where is it coming? Where is it going? What makes it happen? It can be sometimes very strong. It can be sometimes very gentle. We couldn't say, oh, this wind came from three miles. It just happens, and it's, it's blowing, it's going. It's not easily mapped. And Jesus wants us to understand that his grace is like that. It's open-ended. God's action in your soul and in mine is open-ended. Are you willing to believe that? That there is literally no limit to what God can do in your soul and in your life and through your life. To the amount of love that he can bring you to. To the way in which he can shape and help and build up lives through you. There's no limit to that. Well, there is a limit. You know what it is. 
our lack of desire, not wanting it, not being willing to open ourselves to it and to make the effort. But that grace is, is, is open-ended. It's just my lack of desire and perhaps sometimes even my lack of imagination. Jesus continues unveiling to Nicodemus his purpose and his mission. He goes even deeper to really bring out the heart of why Jesus is standing in front of him. And he says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Those who believe in him are not condemned, but those who do not believe are condemned already because they have not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For all who do evil hate the light and do not come to the light so that their deeds may not be exposed. Now these are very dense, uh, mysterious words. But if we just start with the very simple declaration, the famous passage, John 3.16, if you watch sporting events, you see it <laughs> in signs. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. This is how God judges the world. His judgment isn't some sort of angry wrath that looms over cowering humanity. His judgment is to reveal in light, in clarity, how much he loves us. And then when we refuse to stand in that light, when we refuse to allow ourselves to be seen in that light, we judge ourselves. When I pull back, when I'm not willing to show God exactly who I am in my, in my talents and in my strengths, as well as in my weaknesses and my sinfulness, when I'm unwilling to do that, I pull back and I hide from him. It's this very powerful image that Jesus is bringing, saying, look, I've come into the world as light. The person who's willing to not hide will be saved. The person who hides condemns himself. And in this, Jesus is alluding back to the original story of sin. That story about Adam and Eve. And we recall their response to sin. Their response to sin was to hide, to go into the darkness, to not, to try and prevent God from seeing them. And that's exactly the opposite of what we're trying to do right now in prayer. Right now in prayer, I want God to see me. Even the, the parts of me that I'm a little bit embarrassed of, that I wish were different. Lord, see that as well. Help me 
to stand in your light because I believe it is a merciful light. It's not some sort of halogen lamp there to examine all of my imperfections with clinical clarity. It's a healing light if I'm willing to step forward to it and want to be healed. How am I hiding from God and thereby judging myself? And what I'd like to suggest is that, just in a very prosaic way, I think one of the most common hiding places that we can tend to use are excuses. And it could be interesting to just think of excuses as hiding places, where I kind of tuck myself away from God's call, from his invitation to live a life that's greater than the mediocre one that I sometimes tend to prefer. When I excuse myself from prayer, when I make up excuses for just kind of doing the more comfortable plan instead of going out with my friends, when I make excuses for not studying or working in the way that I should, when I make the excuse, I feel a little bit better and it kind of works and it's all rational, but what am I doing? I'm hiding. I'm hiding from a greater possibility from that life that God is calling me to. So that's how the conversation ends. St. John in his gospel doesn't tell us how Nicodemus reacted. We don't know what Nicodemus said to these words of Jesus. St. John just moves on in his story. He starts telling other, other things. We only see Nicodemus again, and this is where we kind of, it's, it picks up later, much later in the gospel, when the controversy around Jesus is getting hotter. There's a lot more debate, so much so that from the governing council of the leaders of Jerusalem, they sent out soldiers to arrest Jesus. And they go to arrest him, but they're so blown away by what Jesus was saying and who he was that they come back empty-handed. And so St. John says, the temple police went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked them, why did you not arrest him? The police answered, never has anyone spoken like this. He just came back saying, this guy is amazing. Then the Pharisees replied, surely you have not been deceived too, have you? Has any one of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd, which does not know the law, they are accursed. (coughs) Notice, Notice what the accusation is. Why are you believing in this Jesus guy? None of the important people do. None of the people with authority. None of the people that we look up to in society. They don't believe in him. So why are you impressed by him? Maybe that can sound familiar. The context that we're in. Maybe that can be one of the sources of doubt and insecurity in our faith. If so many other people who are intelligent and good-looking and funny and witty and characteristic and incredibly successful, if they think Jesus is a sham, then who is believing him? Oh, backwards people hung up on prejudices and old dogmas and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's not a new situation. From the very beginning, that was a constant source of attack. But this is where Nicodemus appears again. So imagine the scene, this big meeting, these poor 
police officers, as they're called to here, these guards come in. They're being humiliated in front of everyone else. Imagine the tension and the pressure. And then Nicodemus speaks up. Nicodemus, and then Saint, this is St. John, a gospel writer speaking, is Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus before and who was one of them, so we're told right there, somehow, in the meantime, Nicodemus had decided to become one of Jesus' disciples. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus before and who was one of them, asked, Our law does not judge people without first giving them a hearing to find out what they are doing, does it? Notice how calm and rational what Nicodemus says is. He just appeals to basic justice. We're condemning a man with no process. We're trying to arrest him. We're trying to possibly you know, inflict capital punishment. Where's basic rules of justice here? Shouldn't we at least look at that? They replied, surely you are not also from Galilee, are you? Search and you will see that no prophet is to arise from Galilee. There's a lot of things to consider here. Which is the time that we have left, I'd just like to zero in on this simple, powerful point. Nicodemus really becomes Jesus' friend. He becomes his disciple when other people know about it. Remember how we said that he came at night. He had that tension, that desire to know, but that fear that he would be identified with Jesus, that people would see that. When this dramatic moment, Nicodemus makes a choice. Apparently, he had been continuing to see Jesus, but maybe in, a, maybe in a hidden way, in a way that no one else knew about or could see. He was still going at night, maybe. But in this moment, when he sees the absolute injustice, the intolerance, the unwillingness to be open-minded and to seek the truth, he decides for Jesus, I'm going to speak up. I'm going to run the risk of being identified with him. If you and I want friendship with Jesus, it's absolutely necessary, absolutely necessary, that we be willing to identify ourselves with him. This isn't a subtle theological point. It's basic humanity. If I call someone a friend, and that friend is someone that I'm embarrassed of, that I don't want anyone to know that they're my friend? What sort of friend am I? Not a very serious one. But if I, my friendship, my care for that person, that relationship is so important, I don't care about the opinion of others, their assessment, their evaluation. That friendship in that moment becomes real. It requires maturity and depth when I stand with that person. And this is what we see with Nicodemus. Jesus is not calling you and I to a public witness that is provocative or annoying. We don't need to go around with a t-shirt that says, I'm Jesus' friend. <laughs> we don't need to talk about religion every time we join a conversation, you know. We show up, hey, how are you good? So, you know what I heard in the homily this Sunday? And we just start talking about that. No? That's just being annoying. And it's a great way to not have very many friends. 
That's not what Jesus is asking. I think it's interesting too, the point I made about Nicodemus. What is Nicodemus? How does he stand forward? He just, he doesn't come up and say, Jesus is my best friend. I love him. How dare you say that? And start sprinkling him with holy water. He just says, well, what about justice? He tries to get him to think. He tries to bring those other Pharisees back to their better nature. He points to the reality of things. He's not preachy or doctrinaire. He's appealing to basic justice. It's a great example of what identifying ourselves with Jesus in society can look like and should look like. But nevertheless, there may be moments in which we have to run the risk of identifying ourselves with Jesus. And is it a risk? Yes. Because some people will snicker. People will talk behind your back. The question we have to ask ourselves is, does that matter? And if it matters, why does it matter? Why should it be so important if everything that we've been saying about Jesus for the last 27 minutes is true? If I believe it. All of this comes to a very dramatic and very moving conclusion in the story of Nicodemus at the end of Jesus' life. The passion, the crucifixion, the rejection, the apostles run and they flee. Jesus dies and he's dead. Absolute humiliation, failure. As far as the Pharisees are consumed, they've just proven that Jesus is not the Messiah. And the way they've proven it is by killing him. You're the son of God. Well, no, you're not because you're dead. That was the proof. So in that moment of absolute failure, St. John tells us that Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, though a secret one because of his fear of the Jews, asked Pilate to let him take away the body of Jesus. Pilate gave him permission, so he came and removed the body. Nicodemus, who had at first come to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes weighing about a hundred pounds. They took the body of Jesus and wrapped it with the spices and linen cloths according to the burial custom of the Jews. Precisely when Jesus seems most a failure, Nicodemus shows his love, his gratitude to Jesus. Extraordinary gesture. I mean, Jesus, Nicodemus goes out and whatever about the Pharisees or his family or other people, he just lets all of that drop. He's not concerned. Why? Because Jesus was his friend. And he stands up for him and he goes and he gives him the dignity of a burial because he cares. What a difference it would make if you and I were Christians for that reason. Not because we're supposed to, not because somehow we're convinced that it's the right answer or because I come from this family or this is the way that I was raised. That's a starting point. It's not, an, it's not an end point. The end point is that through our experience of personal prayer, through our contact with Jesus in the sacraments of the church, we have a personal friendship with him 
that gives purpose, direction, and meaning to my life, just as it did to Nicodemus. Just like every single one of us, Nicodemus felt the fear, he felt the insecurity, he felt the weight and the pressure of other people's assessment, opinion, and expectation. But he didn't let that stop him. He didn't pull back. And as a result, just try to consider how free Nicodemus was when he went with Joseph of Arimathea to bury Jesus. Free from that anxious concern about what will they say? What will they think? I mean, the boldness of Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea is inspiring. Inspiring in that moment because they were, they were completely, had stepped out of that little claustrophobic bubble of concern and self-preservation and were free to do what they wanted. That's the important thing to notice. They were free to do what they wanted. And if you and I allow ourselves to be corralled and caged by other people's expectations, what we are doing is allowing other people to prevent us from doing what we want. And we wind up doing the thing that we don't want, or we wind up compromising, or we wind up this cramped mixture of the two things, wanting and not wanting. Something that maybe could help us imitate Nicodemus more would be to think, did Nicodemus ever look back after the resurrection, after the birth of Christianity? Do you think he looked back and regretted going with Joseph of Arimathea to ask for Jesus' body and burying it? In hindsight, would he have said, oh well, gosh, yeah, I really should have given more importance to what these other nameless Pharisees thought, you know? Of course not. And it can help ourselves uh, sometimes to put ourselves in the future. And, you know, 20 years from now, 30 years from now, what will I look back on and be proud of? What will I look back on and regret? Because there's no replay button on our life. And to just try to gain that perspective can help us get unstuck. It can help us get out of these sometimes paralyzing situations which just result from us being a little bit too absorbed in the moment. A little bit too absorbed in circumstances that will change. And as a result, we lose sight of the things that we really value, that really matter. Our mother Mary, she stood at the cross. She stood at the foot of the cross. When everyone was laughing and mocking, she was there with her son. And it was logical that she would be there. And it's logical that she is at your side and at mine when we find it a little bit difficult, facing nothing exteriorly like they faced. But that, that critical voice maybe on the inside that, that pulls us back, that makes us afraid. Let's turn to Mary at our side and ask her to help us have the courage to identify ourselves with Jesus in a very natural way, a very normal way, at the same time, a very decided and a very courageous way. Thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations you communicated to me in this meditation. I ask your help to put them into effect. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me.